This morning we're going to talk about something that, well, it's one of the verses that's most quoted um, by believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, you can just call into any or listen to any call-in talk show or any open forum uh, when a follower of Christ will object to someone's moral behavior, you will hear them quote this verse. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. Or they know, do not be judged lest you be judged. And then they'll follow up with phrases such as, isn't that what Jesus teaches? Or isn't that what your Bible teaches? I don't know why Christians don't read their Bibles and do as Jesus says. Jesus wouldn't judge. Ironically, these phrases flow from the mouth of so many who in another sentence or two will proclaim their denial of the very existence of God, the one whom they just quoted. My inside, you have inside voices like I do? I have an inside voice. And when I hear that, this is what my inside voice says. Do you read your Bible? I mean, your ignorance is showing here. But I also find it very humorous. Think for a moment with me. Our Western culture has created cancel culture. A culture which judges a person based on very few words, out of context, or possibly a 30-second video clip at most, out of context. And with that snippet of a person's life, we are to judge them, both in deed and in motivation. Mobs and bots roam social media to perform the task of judge, jury, and executioner. There are people who hunt online sources on a regular basis, all looking for something that someone has said or done that doesn't fit with their value system, all with the express purpose of exposing them. It's a search and destroy mission for them. A child is guilty of bullying in elementary or high school And what happens? They're robbed of future job prospects because that video or that statement shows up again and again and again. No wonder, especially our young people, but no wonder in general people suffer with anxiety and other mental health issues living in such a culture. See, the court of public opinion can be very costly. But even under our Youth Offenders Act, especially if a person's young, Once they come of age, their record's expunged. It no longer reads what they were guilty of. But not so in cancel culture. No apology, no groveling appears to be enough. The phrase judge not, I've come to learn, is just an alias for I want you to celebrate my sin. Think of the reaction this week to a Christian actress who cut her ties with Hallmark to move over to another cable channel with the intention of creating family-friendly entertainment. Entertainment with a biblical sexuality and a, a biblical ethic around the family. Some have spent the whole week trying to have her canceled. Her values towards sexuality and traditional family do not reflect their values nor do they reflect an increasingly portion and a growing portion of that of our society's values. We live in a world that is increasingly becoming 
hostile to truths of Christianity. This is the type of attitude that Christ addresses in the sermon. Our, Our context has not changed. We're still listening to Jesus on the same hillside, the same sermon delivered just outside of Capernaum. Jesus concludes his discussion on issues that weaken a believer's walk. The zeal for money, the the zeal of worry. Both take our focus off God and, and render our service and our witness less effective. Jesus' focus now attends to another zeal. That's the zeal for judging others. A pursuit that transforms a person into a harsh, unjust critic. He moves us from the motivation, whether it be money or worry, anxiety, to our relationships. Before we look at the word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. And Father, you tell us that your word is a mirror and we are to look into it and to evaluate. And Father, this morning as we look into your word, may your spirit work in our lives. Father, we just thank you for your word and and the truths that are contained in it. We're so grateful that we have the ability, unlike other generations past, to have the scripture in our own language and to be able to read it and to study it and to meditate upon it. May we do that this morning as we turn to it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you haven't opened up your Bibles already, open them up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're beginning with verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Simple, straightforward enough. But is, is Jesus asking us here to suspend all our mental faculties... Refrain from discerning what is right from wrong, from making any judgments. Is that what he's saying? I think a good place to start might be with the word itself, judge. In the Greek, the word is used very broadly, meaning to decide, to consider, as in preferring one thing over another, to determine the correctness of a matter by extension to pass judgment on or condemn in a legal sense. That helps a little, but it doesn't narrow it down enough for us. So let's narrow it a little more by looking at context. In Matthew chapter 16, if we were to jump forward, we'll come across later this section that asks us and encourages us to judge and to discern. We're to discern those who would be false prophets. Even in the passage this morning, if we jump ahead to verse 6, and we'll go there first, the passage there asks us to discern or to judge. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I prefer the word uh, hog as opposed to pig. And there's a reason for that. When when I think of pig, North America, people have begun to make pigs pets, believe it or not. And not only that, others think in terms of their little piggy bank for their children, or they think of a cartoon like Peppa Pig, or for those that are older, Porky Pig, and for those in between, Miss Piggy. The same holds true when we use the word dog. We think of those quite 
cuddly, furry little creatures, we'd be better to add a descriptor in front of dog, wild. Because when we talk about the, the dogs and the hogs here, we're talking about filthy scavengers. And to be referenced as a dog or a hog in Jewish society was not a compliment. The need for discernment is the message of verse 6. What is holy? The, the pearls are a reference to the gospel truths. We need to judge people and the situations. And, and there are times when we just need to refrain from sharing those gospel truths. The audience will simply be antagonistic or caustic towards those truths. Scripture is clear. Don't give the sacred to the dogs or the hogs. Perhaps a good example of this is Matthew chapter 15, if you want to turn there for a second. Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 14. When he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that this defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has, pl has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The disciples come to Jesus and they inform him, hey, you know what? The, the Pharisees are offended. It's somewhat like they didn't understand why the Pharisees were offended. And they wanted to know if, if Jesus was going to take time to, to speak to them or, or to correct them or to talk with them. Jesus' answer is quite clear, quite clear. He simply says, let them alone. Let them alone, which is a phrase that denotes this kind of abandonment. See, their ultimate doom was sealed. They were not interested in the truths. This verse is much akin to where we read in Romans where God gives people over to their passions and their dishonorable lives. Christ is saying, just let them go. Leave them alone. Say, I'll never understand why some Christians feel it their duty and their a necessity to be interviewed by those who have one goal on mind, whether it's on the radio or the television or on the internet. Those people, their only goal when they interview believers is to make a fool out of them to drag down the name of Christ and discredit his word, or at least try to. They're not interested in dialogue. The same holds true on social media. More times than not, serious conversation on social media is impossible. It's just absolutely futile. And there are a few that do it well. These platforms are full of trolls seeking their moment of fame. Wisdom, discernment, proper judgment, however you want to word it, would lead us to go, okay, they're not interested in listening to the gospel truths. Move on. Don't waste your time. So judge wisely when sharing gospel truths. I worked in social services for years, and it soon became very apparent to me that the lunchroom was not a good place for any serious discussion. It also became clear to me, certain co-workers, it wasn't worth discussing with them too. They were not interested in the gospel truth. 
like the dogs and hogs, they just trampled them under the feet and they began attack on you. Not a discussion. Jesus continues. Go back up to Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The English language doesn't do a great job of capturing the two different words used for the translation measure. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure, the first measure, it's the idea of the limit, what is a portion to you. So that a portion for you, you will, you use, so the portion you use will be measured. And the word here for measure is a measurement in return of. So however you measure people in your judgment, that's what you're going to get back. What we would say today is what goes around comes around. Or we might say, watch what you say because it might come around to bite you. The issue is a critical spirit. And that critical, people with critical spirits have been around for a long time. However, in our day and age, in our present battle seems to be this spillover from our politics. Charles Swindoll reflected on this and stated it this way. As a culture, we are quick that if we find something we disagree with in a person, we castigate the whole person. No one takes the time to dig deep enough to get to the facts and draw a fair conclusion. Instead, we slap a label on the person. Why? Labels take less effort. They take less effort than having a relationship and a meaningful discussion. And then they share their conclusions with whoever will listen. Or they broadcast them on social media. Labels in identity politics have created a growing polarization that has spilled over to society and to, in general. And unfortunately into evangelical circles. And I use that term evangelical very broadly here. So I believe there are those who think that labeling and further dividing people into categories is going to create unity. Well, it doesn't. It's never worked and it won't work. Unity in the body of Christ will only occur when others begin to put others first and they begin to submit themselves to God. So if you want unity in a church, the first thing you do is you put Christ first and then you put others first. You submit yourself underneath Christ and others ahead of yourself. So four reasons why judging is wrong. First, we don't have the ability to look into another's heart and know their motivation. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, the author makes it clear, we look at the outward of appearance of a person while God looks at the heart. Judging another person's motives is near impossible. Two, when we have our own prejudice, objectivity is hard, and all our judgment is based on our own limitations, including our limited knowledge. Three, we make ourselves out to be God, and we have no right to do that. We make ourselves judge, jury, and executioner over others. And four, judgmentalism can lead to the fault-finding syndrome. This syndrome will kill community.
There's nothing that will kill a community, a church, a family, or anything than having people who like to find faults in others. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, as Christ continues his sermon. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. I picture this as a, as a comedy skit almost. You have one actor who gets a little speck in his eye, a sawdust or something like that. And if, if you do any woodworking, you know a little speck of sawdust is one of the most irritating things to get in your eyes. And it bothers you. And you tear up and you're struggling. Well, all of a sudden this other character comes on stage. And this other character wants to help you. But he's got this huge log in his. And as he comes across, he knocks things over, including knocking you over. He's whacking everything with this huge beam as he tries to help the person with the speck. They can't even get close. It's not that he doesn't want to help, but he's of no help in the situation he finds himself. What an illustration. This is a great illustration of a person with a a critical spirit. They're oblivious to what is obvious to everyone around them. They're too busy hunting down faults in others. They're a member of the self-appointed morality police. And I say that with all respect and full knowledge that I've met people from countries where this is a reality and they have morality police. But how does that work out? Not very well. The goal for someone with a critical spirit is to search out all the petty faults all the failures of the past and expose them. And exposure comes in many forms. It can come in the form of a snide comment, gossip, social media posts, notes, or emails that should never have been sent. And don't forget those messy confrontations. See, a Christian with a critical spirit has misunderstood the Christian life. They're carrying a burden that God has never intended for them. Absent is a grace-filled life. First Peter 4, 8, we read this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Sincere love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't instruct us to expose, but to forgive. And from Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The first point of contact is not exposure. Exposure hardly qualifies as gentleness. Rather, it's the very essence of condemnation and humiliation when we seek to expose somebody first. No, restoration is the goal here. It's it's grace-oriented. 
The, the serious of sin is not downplayed here. Rather, the person is dealt with in a manner that recognizes that seriousness. Look at the warning. Look at the warning for those who come alongside the brother or sister has fallen. Keep watch lest you be tempted and fall into sin too. And, and the restoration is the duty of those who are spiritual. And this requires a person to be humble. So we're looking for a person of humility and one who is given over to continuous self-examination. Verse 1 and 3, the one who has sinned needs affirmation. The affirmation they need is they're not on this journey alone. It's not a solitude thing they're going through. And that we've come alongside in love to them. And for a time as they struggle and as they work through things. And when we come alongside somebody who has sinned, we also need to understand and keep in mind that we too are vulnerable. We're just as vulnerable to sin as anyone else. This is an attitude that's absent in those who possess a critical spirit. Rather, they have an air of superiority that leads to an attitude of presumption. In other words, they're a know-it-all. It's the sin of pride run amok. They rob themselves of the joy that the Lord intended for their lives by living a life of suspicion of others around them. In Romans chapter 12, we find this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. For that, I think of so many men that have fallen from the pulpit and what they pick on week after week. And we can look south of the border. We can look across our country and see that. Also think of King David. In 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7, it's a great illustration of this. This is a bit of a paraphrase, but the Lord sent Nathan to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb and he, that he had bought. And he raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. He ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb. And he killed it, and he prepared it for his guest. Well, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. See, David is ready to take vengeance when he hears the story. He's ready to defend the poor farmer. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite and stolen his wife. God then pronounces judgment on David. And David confesses his guilt. That confession can be read in Psalm 51. 
Listen as I read just a few select portions from the psalm. Because this fits great with what Christ is talking about. Have mercy on me, O... This is David's response. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And cleanse me from my sin. And, and done what is evil in your sight. He's saying he's done what is evil in your sight. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit within me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. See how that fits into the sermon that Christ was talking about? Once the speck or the log is removed... Once the sin is removed, David is able then to go teach others so that those sinners may return to God. Now, in our hilarious little escapade of the log and the speck, don't think that the log means that Christ is saying that person has a bigger sin than the other person because that's not what the story is saying. Rather, those who are going to approach somebody who have sinned or fallen or have an issue need to ensure that they do so with a proper attitude and with a life that's clean. We're not talking about perfection. but We're, we're talking about with a good attitude. We're talking about one that seeks to live for the Lord, that is spiritual in their approach. We're not categorizing one as another. Have we categorized the little speck is a one sin and, and the log is another sin, then we're beginning to prioritize what sins are. And Scripture never does that. Matter of fact, prioritizing one sin over another simply leads to a feeling of superiority. James 4.11 and 12 clarifies this for us when a little more of what Christ is talking about. And I'm going to read it from the CSB from the Christian Standard Version. Don't criticize one another, brothers or sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? These verses actually might be better read. Don't slander your brothers or sisters. Jesus confirms what he's already alluded to. Those with a critical spirit tend to be gossipers too. Building themselves up by pulling others down. A classic illustration of this is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18 verses 11 and 12. You're probably familiar with it. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. Execute extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That is a man with a critical spirit. And from Romans, let me read this. Romans chapter 14, 10 through 12. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scripture says, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. 
So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. The point is this. Many times we should just mind our own business. A critical spirit has no place in the followers of Christ's life. And I believe there's a case to be built that how we treat people inside and outside the church is very important. Self-righteousness does not build up fellow believers, nor does self-righteousness change the heart of an unbeliever. Does this mean we don't engage the world with our biblical worldview? By all means, no. But how we do it is so important. Some people are very gifted to speak to a large audience and they're very gifted to engage the world in a different platform than one-on-one. But there are others of us who neither have the, the temperament nor the knowledge to do so. We need to know ourselves as much as we need to know the audience before us. But all of us are asked to engage on a personal level with relatives and friends and neighbors and to do so in wisdom, not to throw the pearls of the gospel to the dogs and hogs. Do you know your neighbors like that? Do you know your neighbors where you can approach them and talk to them and you know which ones are soft and willing to hear and other ones that they're just hardened and it's just a waste of time because they're not interested? When dealing with each other, when we're dealing each other in faith, we need to be gracious. I think uh, an old American theologian, Dr. Ironside, said it well. When our hearts are occupied with his wondrous love, we remember that he loved us when we were unlovely. And some of us are not very lovely now. We remember that he loved us when we were unlovable. And some of us are not very lovable yet. If he could do that when we were rebellious, and if that same love is now shed abroad in our hearts, we ought to be able to love those who are sinful and unkind and selfish. See, if worry represents a lack of faith, if storing up earthly treasures represents a lack of trust, then judging represents a lack of love and acceptance. I think Dr. Ironside was speaking of Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I pondered how to conclude the sermon. And there was one quote from D.A. Carson from Trinity that kept coming back to mind. Dr. Carson said this, He who poses as a judge cannot plead ignorance of the law. Romans chapter 2, 1. And he who insists on an unalloyed justice for others is scarcely open to mercy himself. James chapter 2, 13. 
The problem returns in Matthew 18, 23 through 35. Here, in the verses we're talking about this morning, the command to judge is not a requirement to be blind, but rather generous. We're not being asked to suspend our critical thinking, but to renounce the presumption and presumptuous ambition to be God. So we're not asking that sin be ignored, though we do ask that you renounce your preferences. Rather, in dealing with sin, we are asked to be generous, treating those who have sinned in the church as they've done something unpardonable is wrong. Someone who's been caught in sin has only done that which each of us does on a regular basis. Sin. Sometimes the biggest difference is they got caught and we didn't. See, sin in all its forms is ugly. It's what nailed Christ to the cross. The big ones and the little ones weren't distinguished. On the cross, he paid the penalty for all sin. And he grants forgiveness to all those who will come in faith to him. It doesn't say all those who come groveling. It says all those who come by faith. We need to treat people with generosity. We need to be treat people like we would like to be treated. Whether we've sinned or not, we all want to be treated with love, respect, and kindness. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about here. It's not asking us to turn a blind eye. It's asking us to treat each other with generosity. We're not perfect. We're not to be nitpickers. We're not to be, we're not to be fault finding. That will kill community as fast as anything. It'll kill community as fast as bad doctrine. We need to be open handed and generous in our forgiveness and seeking to restore people with the gospel truths. We need to be wise when dealing with unbelievers. Yes, we're to engage our culture, but we're to do it wisely. And I thank the Lord for those that are much smarter than me, that have much more patience with unbelievers sometimes than I do, that God has raised up in those positions. But God each gives each of us a spear to share the truth with. And we need to be faithful to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We do thank you for those that you've raised up that seem to be able to engage culture so well. But that doesn't take the responsibility away from us from engaging culture close to home. Father, raise up people from Forest Baptist that will share with their neighbors, that will be salt and light, here in Forest and in Lambton Shores, in our families that may stretch beyond this region, to be able to engage with the gospel. For those who have fallen, we engage with a a desire to see restoration. For those who have never come to you, we engage with the desire for them to be brought into a relationship with you, to be restored to the to the state that was intended at creation. Father, grant us unity. 
Father, may our love for each other far outweigh anything else. May we treat each other with generosity, love, and care. May we really treat others as we would want to be treated. To give the benefit of the doubt. Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you that Christ died on the cross. And we thank you that even while we were in a rebellious state and sinners far from you, that you loved us, that you set your love upon us to bring us into a relationship with you. We thank you in Christ's name we pray. Amen.